Well, how many were tempted to just stay home on this cold morning outside? Yeah, I was too. It's kind of kind of cold this morning. Praise the Lord. Well, it's supposed to be. It's February. But how many know there's supposed to be? It can be cold on the outside, but fire burning in our hearts for God. And I hope this new year... Do you know you're six weeks into the new year already? I just can't believe it. It's just zooming, zooming, zooming. I want to ask you a question as we begin that kind of sets up the message. Have you made any deliberate changes in your spiritual life in these first six weeks? Now, if you can think back to January 1st, it seems like a long time ago, but people were saying, I'm going to pray a little bit more, I'm going to read my Bible, I'm going to, you know, we did some fasting, set myself apart to God, Uh, I'm going to endeavor to reach more people for Christ, I'm going to share my faith, I'm going to find a place to serve the Lord. I'm going to pray for people uh, at work. You know, I'm going, to, I'm going to begin to use my life as an extension to God. I'm not just going to be a Sunday Christian. I'm going to be someone making a difference in the world. I really hope you're headed in that direction, friends, because let me know that's what the Christian life is all about. It's not just giving God an hour on Sunday and a religious obligation, but it's living for Jesus all the days of my life because just like that, our life here on earth is over. Well, I've been doing a series from the book of Nehemiah called Rise Up. And it's been about making a difference in our lives for the kingdom of God. It's about significance. It's about doing something that lasts. And uh, Nehemiah chapter 2 is where we'll begin. Of course, you can listen to our messages throughout the week. You can download them, whatever the case may be. But we've got something new. We've got Wi-Fi in the sanctuary, public Wi-Fi. And if you've got an iPad or a smartphone, if you want to download the sermon notes from our app, uh, you can do that. Just go to the store, Church on the Rock, Texarkana, and uh, you can use the notes, maybe get a little bit more out of it. But once you look in your Bibles, Nehemiah chapter 2, two weeks ago we were on this passage. And we're going to continue here for at least uh, this morning and probably next week. But it's going to introduce two people in the story of Nehemiah that battled him from beginning to end. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 9, again, if you don't know much of his story, he was literally, he was a Jewish man. He was a slave in Persia and God had liberated the people and they've headed back home, back to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple, rebuild their city, rebuild their way of life. But it had come to a standstill. Uh, Things were not good in Jerusalem. Nehemiah felt the burden of God to go and the king of Persia actually released him to go. Uh, Verse 9, he's leaving now. He said, when I met the governors across the river, I showed them the king's letters. The king had sent letters of support. But verse 10, when Sanballat and Tobiah heard about this, they were very, what's it say, upset and angry. Think about this now. They were upset and angry that anyone would come to look after the interests of the people of Israel. Now, that's a pretty big deal. You would think if a man was on a mission for God, everybody would be happy. Yeah, Uh, you would think if someone is making a great sacrifice, they're trying to help make the world a better place by establishing God's kingdom on the earth, you would think people would applaud and everybody, but that is not the case. And something we learned a couple weeks ago is that when you try to do something for God with your life, you're going to be opposed. I mean, it could be something as simple as, let's say you're at, uh, you're at Thanksgiving dinner, and uh, up until that point, when family came over for dinner, I mean, when the turkey hit the table, the legs went flying, and it was just a, a free-for-all. But all of a sudden, you say, uh, we're going to pray before we eat today. And your family goes, oh, what? And then somebody starts snickering, and you kind of look around with an eyeball, and people are going, <coughs> well, how many know that's opposition? 
It may be from a knucklehead cousin or something, but it's still opposition to you trying to go forwards in the Lord. And that's what we're looking at because as we look in this passage about Sanballat and Tobiah and Nehemiah, I want you to see that the Bible teaches that there is a spiritual force behind opposition. Let me say it again. There's a spiritual force behind opposition, and Satan will literally use people to oppose you as you're trying to do the work of God. Now, let me say again, not all opposition is, you know, is the devil. Come on. Just because somebody disagrees with you, that just could be just part of life. It could be your personality or whatever the case. But there is some spiritual opposition when you're trying to do something for God that's right in your face. Well, we, we talked about this two weeks ago, uh, Opposition Part 1, and I looked at three strategies. We looked at three passages of Scripture in the book, and the first thing that the devil incited these people to do is they literally would laugh at them. In other words, they came to town and said, you're going to rebuild the wall, and they started laughing, much like laughing at the prayer of Thanksgiving dinner. That didn't do any good. So the second strategy is Sanballat became very angry. Now, he was a person of authority, a person of power, likely an intimidating person. Let me know when an intimidating person gets angry at you, they've got the potential to shut you down. I mean, someone in authority, you've had a boss like that, maybe it was a parent, uh, whoever it could have been in your world, but they intimidated you, could have been a coach at school, and they're yelling, whatever the case is, but they escalated the anger, and it still didn't stop uh, Nehemiah from building the wall. And then the third escalation, the third strategy, they were literally making threats of violence. I mean, no, the world around us, many people use, uh, they get their point across through violence whether it's a gang on the street, whether it's a movement, a, a movement in the world, the Islamic faith, you know, many different groups advance their cause through the use of violence. And uh, that was the third strategy that came against him. But in all these, we saw Nehemiah didn't stop. So how many know the lesson for us? When I'm doing something for God and there's spiritual opposition, don't let anything stop me. Praise the Lord. So let's, we're going to continue that this morning. We're going to look at two more strategies Satan used. But I want you to go first to Ephesians chapter 6. And I want to underscore again this fact to you is that Satan will use people to oppose God's work in your life. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, a very powerful passage. In verse 11, it tells us that we're to put on the full armor of God. Put on the full armor of God so you can do what? Fight against the devil's tricks. Now, we don't have time to read all this, but it depicts like a Roman soldier with a shield and a sword and, and all the coverings for, that, for their armor. But notice who you're fighting. Uh, the New Century Version translation says, Our fight is not against people on earth. Some translations say, Our fight is not against flesh and blood. In other words, there's a person behind the problem. There's a person behind the issue that's going on that, that, that's causing a problem, and it's a spiritual force that's there. The Bible's very clear. It says our fight is not against people, but against the spiritual powers of evil in the heavenly world. Now, here's the deal. In our secular world today, we've inherited more of our thought from the Greek culture than the biblical worldview is that if you can't see it, it's not real. And how many know you can't put a demon under a microscope? You can't, you know, put Satan in a cage, but yet you can see his work on the earth. Uh, the Bible describes our adversary Satan as one who came to steal, kill, and destroy. He's called a murderer. Uh, he's our adversary. He's our enemy. Uh, Peter says that he is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, and we're told to resist him. So there is an unseen spiritual force that's behind people. Uh, let me give you an illustration as I try to interpret the times for you. 
One thing I try to do as your pastor when I open the Bible is not just teach you historically the Scripture, but to take that historical truth and see how it might apply in our world today. So if we look and see what the Bible teaches us, that there are, it's a spiritual warfare that we're in, that evil is battling the kingdom of God. Let me ask you this question. As America talked about this week about health care, and you remember it was the imposition on religious organizations and any employer that they would have to include abortion coverage in their health care plan. They'd have to prov- uh, provide contraceptions, the morning-after pill, which is an abortion pill literally to, to make sure that the pregnancy doesn't happen. Well, the Catholic Church, as well as evangelical Christians, rose up across America and said, you know what, that's just simply wrong. Not only does our Constitution guarantee the freedom of religion, but it's just morally wrong, and we're not going to do that. And, of course, it was a big, big deal that came up, you know, with the administration and what's going on in America today. Well, here's my question to you. Do you think there's a spiritual force that motivates the abortion movement in America? Now, a lot of people would disagree with you. A lot of people would say that you're just some deceived religious person. But I would suggest to you that the same spirit that motivated Pharaoh, you remember when he killed all the babies in Moses' era, wiped them out, just killed them, destroyed them. You remember in Jesus' day, King Herod, what did he do? He literally killed all the babies that were born around the time that Christ was born. I will suggest to you that the same spirit that's there is behind the modern abortion movement. I'll suggest to you that there is a demonic presence because, see, the Bible clearly teaches us that men are created, women are created in the image of God. That little baby we held bears the fingerprint of God, and that's what gives her value. What gives her value is not that she's going to be productive one day, not that her parents are consuming for her, but she has value just like a handicapped child that that will never do anything in life. She has value just like an elderly person in a nursing home that has no productive value to society, no benefits to society. Value comes because value becomes because we're created in the image of God. Well, our world doesn't think that way. Our world has somehow ascribed abortion coverage under the rubric of a woman's health. And I'll suggest to you that there's a spiritual force that's behind that. Uh, There's a comment, I think, the proper Christian response to this. Dr. Richard Land, the spokesman for the Southern Baptist in terms of ethics and cultural issues. Here's what he said about the health care issue. He said, our responsibility is to stand and say, we will not comply with this. We want the law changed or else we're going to write our letters from the Nashville jail, just like Dr. King wrote his from the Birmingham jail. We will not comply. And I'll tell you what, I say a hearty amen to that. I say, you know, listen, the laws of God are higher than the laws of man. Praise the Lord. So, so as we look in issues, and here's what I want you to learn to see in our culture, where is the spiritual dynamics that are behind it? And if there's an advancement of the kingdom of God, you can be assured that it will be opposed. And those opposing it are not, you know, not solely the problem. The head of Planned Parenthood is not the problem. Come on. It's the spirit that's behind the movement that's the problem. So that that's kind of sets a context. So you can see Old and New Testament both teach us that we have an enemy. He's trying to oppose the work of God in our lives. But we are to resist him and keep going forwards with what God's called us to do. That's what Nehemiah did. Now, with that background, let's look at the the, the next strategy that Satan uses. I want you to go to Nehemiah chapter 6. And there's two words that we'll see in these verses, traps and lies. Can you say that? Traps and lies. So what Satan will do is he'll use people to set a trap for you, to try to get you caught up, to, to, to lie about you, to intimidate you, so you'll stop doing what God's called you to do. 
I guarantee you, every young person in this room, if you have tried to pray over your food, you're concerned about what your friends are thinking. And everybody said? And let me tell you how I know that's true with young people, because it's true with older people. I mean, it's just the look of a person when they look at you and see that you're praying has the power to intimidate you. Well, and, and, and if it happens in prayer, imagine what it happens because Nehemiah was trying to help move the people of God forwards into the destiny of God. Now, Nehemiah 6.1, here's the three bad guys, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. Now, let me tell you who they are because we're going to develop them more next week as we'll look at this opposition again because opposition began in chapter 2 and it went all the way through the end of the book. And I think it's probably eight different ways that Sanballat and Tobiah used to influence them. Now, Sanballat was the governor over the whole region. He was, he was a political person of power, but interestingly, his daughter was married to the grandson of the Jewish high priest. Now, the Jewish people were supposed to be, were supposed to be a set-apart race. They were not supposed to intermarry with other people because of the purity of the line from which Christ would be born. Hence, when you find genealogies in the Bible, they're, they're very boring to me, but they're very important because the genealogies showed that truly this person could qualify as a Levite, they could qualify as a priest, they had the inheritance rights of the people of God, and they were supposed to keep it pure, but even at this moment, we see that a pagan guy is intermarried with the Jewish people. Tobiah, another one, he was a Persian official. He had alliances with the leaders of Judah. He was related in marriage to the high priest, to the high, one of the high priest's daughters. And it also, he was a man that was at least half Jewish because the word Tobiah means uh, Yahweh, or the Old Testament name for God, Yahweh is good. So what we have here is we have a number of dynamics that are coalescing. We have political opposition, religious opposition, and the last man, Geshem, all we know about him is he was an Arab and he had some economic interests. So here's what we see. God's trying to get his people moving and going again. The motive or the heart motive of Nehemiah is to advance the kingdom of God, just like you when you're praying at school, praying with your softball team. I mean, if I was going to be a coach of some kids, I would make sure that we prayed before the game and I'd pray after the game. That's a Christian witness. It's a Christian testimony. You know, I would be someone that's advancing the kingdom of God. And that was Nehemiah's heart. But these other guys, and I want you to see this because it's key. They were motivated by political power, economic gain, and they had somehow diluted the role of religion to bring all this to pass. Now, these same dynamics are at work today. You take any social issue, you take the opposition that surrounds you, you look at the people that are, that are, that are for example, in the Catholic Church, the abortion issue. Uh, there's a number of Catholics that are pro-choice, or they believe in abortion, even though they're religious. You know, and it's not my place to judge them, but it's just out there, and it's a mixture. That's exactly what they had here. Now, let's read the passage. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem found out that I had finished rebuilding the wall. The wall would surround the city. It was its protection. Though we had not yet set up the doors or the gates to come into the city, that remained to be done. So Sanballat and Geshem, notice now, they sent a message asking me to meet, uh, to meet them at one of the villages in the plain of Ono. It's almost like saying, okay, we're building God's wall here, God's city, Jerusalem in Texarkana, but uh, we want you to come out to Maud and we want to talk to you. So that's kind of the picture. But notice this next word. I would underline this. I do this in my Bible. I realized they were plotting to harm me. Now, this word realize is very key because it's not just figuring it out. There's some sense of spiritual discernment as well. I realized they were plotting to harm me, so I replied, I'm engaged in a great work. I cannot come. 
In other words, they wrote a letter, he wrote a letter back. It happened four times they sent the same message, and each time I gave the same reply. Now, here's one of the first lessons I want you to see. Satan will be relentless to try to stop you. When you're trying to do something for God, he will work against you doing everything he can until the work is done. So just go ahead and accept the fact, if you're going to be a genuine believer in today's world, you're going to be opposed, you're in a battleground. Verse 5, the fifth time his servants came to him. Now this first time it was a trap. In other words, come, I want to talk to you, because what would have happened if he'd have gone out? Now they'd have killed him. They've already threatened to kill him. It was a trap. It was a setup. Now it's a lie. And I want you to see how people will lie about you as well. And there's a rumor among the surrounding nations, and Geshem tells me it's true. Again, another bad guy. But it, it's almost like if the more voices you can get behind the lie, the more real it sounds. Geshem, it's like a political endorsement. Geshem says it's true as well, uh, that you and the Jews are planning to rebel, and that's why you're building the wall, you plan to be their king. So now they're saying, if we can start this rumor, then the real king of the region, the king of Persia, he'll wipe you out. So once again, one more trick, one more strategy, and they're making up something about them. Verse 7, you can be very sure that... Uh, uh, let's see. Verse 7, you can be very sure that the report will get back to the king. So I suggest you come and talk it over with me. He wants to wipe him out. Now, verse 8, here's his reply. There's no truth in any part of your story. In other words, Nehemiah right back in his face. No, you're lying. And then verse 9, it says they were just trying to intimidate us, imagining they could discourage us and stop the work. And this verse, last uh, uh, sentence is powerful. So I continued to work with greater determination. So here what we've got, this strategy involves traps and lies. Its purpose is to intimidate and stop them from what God's called them to do, but they won't hear anything about it. Now, let's learn a little bit. The first one about the traps that Satan uses people to trap us. Jesus even faced traps. Matthew 22, verse 17, the Pharisees came to ask him a question. I mean, when people ask you a question, they're not always wanting to know what you think. Oftentimes, they're wanting to set you up. Okay, well, that's what happened to Jesus. Jesus said, so tell us what, or they said to Jesus, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But knowing these leaders were trying to trick him, the script Jesus said to them, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? You bunch of hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Again, Jesus discerned what they were doing. Maybe you recall a couple of weeks ago, um, Governor Romney, as he is trying to be the Republican nominee, he made a statement in a speech. In one small phrase, he said, I don't care about the poor. And then he went on to talk. Now, if you heard that in the news media today, that's all you heard. Romney doesn't care about the poor. But if you listen to his whole speech, basically he was saying, there is a safety net for the poor in America. There's a lot in place to help people that are poor and struggling. I'm going to begin to focus on the middle class. I'm going to focus on those that are creators of wealth. I'm going to focus on business people because we need to get our economy going. But if you just took out that little bit, what you did is you tried to create an impression in the minds of people. And can I tell you, it is a trap, it's a setup, and you'll see it in commercials from now through the end of the campaign. See, that's the way the opposition works. There's spiritual forces at work in the world today, and they're looking to trap you. They're looking to trip you and, and get you caught up in it. Well, let me say this to you. We must listen to the Holy Spirit to know what to do. Now, this is just super, super, super key. Notice there in verse, uh, verse uh, 3, I realized they were plotting to harm me. 
I realized they were plotting to harm me. Well, this realization, again, it's not just figuring something out. It's listening to the Holy Spirit because he always knows what's going on. I can't always read the motive of a man, but how many know God knows the motive of a man? Let me give you a story how this works. There was a preacher, I won't call his name, it's about 20-some 20, 20 years ago in America. Famous guy, if I called his name, you'd know it. Large church in those days. And uh, he was approached by a TV interviewer. And the TV person basically said, we believe you're going to be the next Billy Graham in America. And we want you to come on television. We're going to do a live broadcast. We want to interview you. We want to tell the world about all that you're doing. Well, imagine that what would do that to a man's ego. Well... As the date got closer and the word got out, his preacher buddies came up to him and said, it's a setup, it's a trap, don't do it. He had a friend that was a marketing friend. And his marketing friend says, this is going to be the greatest day of your life when you get on that stage. Well, guess what? It was a huge setup. And lo and behold, they began to tell half-truths, show pictures that didn't include, you know, I mean, they just painted a partial picture and it was the end of his ministry. And now his ministry basically doesn't even exist today. And it was a starting place because the devil knows how to trap you and trick you. But if you will listen to the Holy Spirit, if you will talk to godly people, come on, the Bible says in the multitude of counsel, there's what? There's safety. So if you're listening to the right people when you make your decisions, they'll help you figure out if it's friend or foe. Come on, somebody say praise the Lord this morning. So it was a trap, but he discerned it. But notice now the second part of this passage is Satan uses people to lie about us and question our motives. You remember the lie that you Jews are planning to rebel? That's why you're building the wall. You plan to be their king. It was just an outright lie. And let me say this to you. Um, I'm a little naive sometimes. I tend to believe people what they say. Anybody else? Let me see your hand. Come on. You just should do that. It, it, it's, it's, it's so cynical every time you talk to someone just to assume they're lying. It's hard to live, isn't it? I mean, I tell you, I am amazed that my television does not have a hole in it because of the th- stuff I've, I've thrown at it when our politicians talk to me. I'm telling you. They tell me, now now listen, they tell me that they care about our budget deficits, they care about the spending in America, but when they present us a budget, it shows $1.3 trillion in debt the next year with the most rosy predictions, and yet they tell me they care about the budget. I just, I feel like I'm being lied to. Can we just be honest? I just feel like I'm being lied to. And in this political season, when people will talk to us in ads and stuff, we really want to believe that it's true. We really want to believe it. But I'm telling you, the, the world in particular is a manipulator. And it's a manipulator towards some end in life. And you've got to be careful. You've got to be discerning. Nehemiah knew he was being lied to. And the Bible says, he basically, verse 8, he just simply told them they were lying. And here's the most important thing, though. He didn't let it stop them. And that's the key thing. No matter what someone does to you, if they laugh at you at the Thanksgiving dinner table because you prayed, uh, if they threaten you on Facebook, if they make lies about you, whatever the case is, you, my Christian, are going to stand before God one day and give an account for what God's called you to do. Because you're not just doing what you do to get people to like you. What you're doing is you're endeavoring to advance the kingdom of God. Come on. And God's going to hold us accountable one day. See? 
Scripture tells us in the parable of the talents that God has given some one, two, five talents, and we're going to give an account for what God has given us. Nehemiah had a call of God on his life, just like I do and just like you do, to advance the kingdom of God. Let's be found faithful and don't let the, tri- the, the traps and the lies stop us. Now, let's look at another one, Nehemiah chapter 6. Here's another strategy. Now, this is, is most diabolical because it mixes religion in it. Now, this next one... Satan will incite people to use a false prophecy to discredit us when we sin. Now listen to this. The key words of false prophecy. Nehemiah chapter 6 verse 10. Later, I went to visit Shemaiah. Now Shemaiah, you know, means nothing if you, didn't, if you don't know who he is. But who this guy was is he was a prophet. And he was hired by Tobiah and Sanballat to basically manipulate Nehemiah. And here was, the, here was the manipulation. There was a, there was a uh, um, in not the Old Testament book of Numbers, Numbers 18, 7, that basically a law from God, and the law said that the only person allowed to come into the inner portion of the temple, the sanctuary, is a priest. And what this prophet did is he lied for money and said, tonight they're going to try to kill you. I want you to come inside the temple and I'll keep you safe. And if he would have done that, he would have sinned against the law of the Bible and his credibility would have been undermined. How many know you can have a lifetime of serving God, but one stupid thing, come on, can flush it all down the toilet? A lifetime of serving God, one stupid thing flushes down. And here's something that's most interesting. They used a man he trusted. Now, how do we know that? Is because Nehemiah went to his house. He wouldn't go out to the plain of Ono and meet with them, like going to Maud or whatever, going to Genoa. He didn't do that. But he, was, he went to his house. So he was a Jewish man. He lived in Jerusalem. Now, let's read the story with that background, that summary. When I went to visit Shemaiah, I, uh, he said, let's meet together inside the temple and bolt the doors shut. Your enemies are coming to kill you tonight. Let's meet there. And this was a prophecy, and you'll see that in a second. Verse 11, I replied, Should someone in my position run from danger? Should someone in my position enter the temple to save his life? No, I won't do it. And that's pretty powerful. If somebody was threatening to kill you, what would you do? I know, you'd make sure there was a bullet in your gun. But after that, after that, you would, you would take whatever steps necessary. I mean, if someone was threatening, I mean, you'd move out of your house, you'd send your kids somewhere else. I mean, you would take prudent steps to save yourself. And here now, mind you, this is a man of God that's supposed to be talking to him. Can I say this? Just because someone says they're a man of God doesn't mean they're speaking for God. I I don't want you to listen to everything I say if it veers from the Bible. That's why I told you a couple weeks ago, when I try to speak into current events, they're not infallible and they're not always a thus saith the Lord. And if I'm wrong on something, shoot me an email, straighten me out, and I'll do my best to stay on the narrow track. But I do you a disservice if I don't help you try to apply the Bible to life. But I also am just a guy, just like you're a guy or a girl. I mean, I pray and I study and all those things, but a man is not infallible in and of himself. You've got to know that because, it, listen, if you just... I'll tell you something, uh, is a little sidelight. I, I, I did something yesterday I rarely do, but I, I watched some Christian television. You say, you're a Christian. Yeah, well, there's just some... And I watched a bit yesterday. I watched three different programs, listened to three different articulate, passionate people, and I was so grieved in my heart that I just turned it off because all three of them talked about giving money and X number of people giving X number of dollars and send it to me or send it to us, and God's going to bless you. 
And I just went. Now, is it true that there's Scripture sowing and reaping? Sure it is. I believe in that. But there's more to the Bible. Come on, the nickels and dimes and quarters. I mean, and, and, and when the nickels and dimes are involved, it's, it's for a purpose. I mean, it's not just, it's not just greed in, 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 uh, in, in Bible clothing. Well, that was just extra, but I really, I was troubled. I was troubled. Um, where, how did we get off on that? Oh, verse 12. I realized God had not spoken to him, but he uttered this what? Say it again prophecy, this word from God against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. They were hoping to intimidate me and make me sin. Again, Numbers 18, 7 says, if anyone other than a priest goes into the temple, it deserves judgment. He could deserve the judgment of death. This sin would have undermined his credibility. They were hoping to intimidate me and make me sin. Then they'd be able to accuse me and discredit me. And that's exactly, when you watch what goes on in our media and modern politics today, my friend, that's exactly what they're trying to do is discredit the people they don't like. And, and, and let me say this too, if I can. I think we have allowed the world to take this term politics and stick the church in the corner that we just talk about a historical Bible. Listen, politics, listen, friends, I believe that the moral issues of the day should be addressed from the pulpits of America and the Word of God. Come on. Not just what other people think, not just what the professional thinks, not just for the, what the majority thinks. I'm deeply troubled in America when one of our Supreme Court justices this week Miss Ginsburg, or last week, when she was in another country of the world, basically said, our United States Constitution is not the one you want to adopt in your country. Get a constitution from a more progressive nation. Well, here's why she says that. If she doesn't want the underlying scripture that supported our nation's constitution, she doesn't want that to define America's future. You see, when the Constitution was written, it was not written to address things that were hundreds of years away, but they, they believed that the Bible, listen now, that the Bible answered moral things that the Constitution didn't have to address. And, and, and when they would try to decide what was going on, if the Constitution wasn't specific, they all held that the Bible was the Word of God and it would guide this Christian nation. That's what the founders said. But we have modern-day folk that that is not what they want America to be. I believe that the, the voice of the pulpit needs to return to the Christian church and to America to say, Thus saith the Lord. So w- when I say some things, please don't let the world cause you to interpret me as a Democrat or Republican. If you want to put a label on me, call me a conservative. Call me someone who has a conservative theology that believes the Bible is the inerrant word of God and Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. Call me a fiscal conservative, someone that believes financially you need to live within your means. Come on, and you cannot borrow your way to prosperity. That the government should live just like you and I live, and the borrower is the servant of the lender, and one day it's going to catch up with America. Call me a social conservative that I believe the Bible's teachings of life regarding abortion. I believe that marriage should be between a man and a woman that lives in the covenant of lifelong monogamous marriage. Come on, and not two ladies or guys or two dogs marrying each other. So... If you want to put a label on me, that's what you can call me. But don't just look at me as a white guy from Mississippi that you think has an R or D behind their name. Because if you look at me through that lens, you've let your world interpret, come on, the way you view something. That's worth coming to church for this morning. 
Our nation's in trouble. Our nation is in trouble. And unless God helps us, listen, I don't care who gets elected to the White House. They can't fix these problems. They're so big. We need God to help rebuild this great nation. And how many know a great awakening can turn things around? A great awakening can cause the opposition to get converted and saved. And those that opposed it, come on, will begin to embrace it. Did you realize the greatest opposer of Christianity in its early days was Saul of Tarsus, a Pharisee who went around killing Christians and, you know, trying to stop the gospel. But when he met Jesus Christ, the one who opposed us now preaches the same gospel. I mean, if you want a testimony to the validity of the Christian message, look at the historical Saul of Tarsus who once killed Christians, now is preaching the gospel he once tried to destroy. How can that happen other than a conversion of heart? And that's exactly what needs to happen throughout the White Houses and the State Houses, come on, and the court systems of America, is that these folks need to turn back to God and allow God to change their minds. Well, one man's opinion there. Jesus told us some things. False prophets, a wolf in sheep's clothing, will use their religious position to manipulate. Matthew 7, 15, Jesus said, Be careful of false prophets. They come to you looking gentle like sheep, but they are really dangerous like wolves. So I'm telling you, friends, not everybody with the Bible is a man of God. Jeremiah 14, 14, The Lord said, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I'm telling you, that's what Shemaiah did, and he did it for money. But Nehemiah knew that it was wrong because he knew his Bible. Come on. And I believe he knew somehow the guidance of the Holy Spirit as he made this decision. Let me, let me wrap this up this morning. Let me tell you this. No true prophet would ever tell you to violate God's law. That's how you knew Shemaiah was false because he was asking you to go against the Bible. I would rather go to a church and hear somebody tell me what the Bible says, not explain it away to make me happy. Because a lot of folks in the world today, they want to be able to, you know, have Jesus and go to heaven, but they also want to be able to live like the devil. And I'm telling you, friends, there's a wide path that leads to destruction and a narrow path that leads to life. And that doesn't make us self-righteous or anything else. It just makes us humble people willing to know and accept and follow the truth. Nehemiah is a powerful guy. As far as his response is, and I'll close now. He faced his danger. He wouldn't disobey the Bible even though there was a cost. The prophet said, you're going to be killed. But he still wouldn't disobey. He judged this prophecy false, verse 12, based on the scripture and discernment. That's why it's so important that you know your Bible. That's why we try to help you connect to God every day in that Bible guide so you can know what the Bible says to make your decisions and know what's going on around you from God's perspective. And of course, last, verse 14, he committed in his prayer. His prayer said, remember God all the evil that Tobiah and Sanballat have done. So rather than retaliate, rather than attack them, rather than doing to them as they did to him, he prayed and he committed them to God. And my friends, that helped this guy go forwards in life. Come on, give the Lord a good hand this morning. God's amazing. I want to, I want to close with this. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. We read this last week. Again, this is Paul's advice regarding those that oppose us. Um, how, how many were raised in a world that you, you solved your difficulties by fighting and duking it out? Let me see your hand here. 
Okay, let me find some more honest people here. How many had brothers and sisters and, and you settle things, you know, come on, by wrestling and duking? There we go. There we go. That is not how we're supposed to deal with people who oppose us. Okay? Now, we talked about self-defense a couple weeks ago, all right? All right, but, but, but let's, let's listen to what Second Timothy 2 said. He said, this, The Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone. Don't slam them on Facebook. Come on, come on. You're not going to win anybody by just, you know, throwing sticks at them. You've got to be able to teach, not resentful. And verse 25 is so key. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. And that they will come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who's taken them captive to do his will. Now, what does all that mean? That means, wouldn't it be an incredible thing if the president of Planned Parenthood got saved? If they repented, if, they, if, if what they had fought all their life for, if they realized one day it's wrong. If, the, if those that are lined up with appointments at abortion clinics tomorrow, the doctor, the nurses, if they would step in the door and have the same sense of God's presence that you felt in worship, and they stopped and realized this is wrong. It's the same thing every one of us did in our journey to Christ. We were living a worldly way. We were taking advantage of people. We were doing what the Bible calls sin. And one day, we realized it. It's like we had blinders on our face, and one day, somebody took the blinders off, and we went, wow. And then I turned my heart. That's exactly, friends, what you and I need to do, what we need to hope and what we need to pray. You see, because the Bible says they are simply people taken captive to do the devil's will. That's what Saul was like when he was killing Christians. But one day, the mercy of God came to him. So I tell you this, people that oppose you, I hope you're praying for them. I hope you see that it's not just flesh and blood that's the problem, but there's a spirit that's behind it. And the way you deal with that is not with your dukes, but it's in the place of prayer. Come on, talking to God about them. If you can't get through their wall and talk to them, get over the wall in prayer and let God talk to their heart. Because my friends, my goal, come on, is to see people come to Christ. And when they come to Christ, they'll tell the truth. Come on, they'll protect those in the nursing homes. They'll live within their... I mean, listen, the world is a different place when people are living the Jesus way. Give the Lord a good hand this morning. I'm, I'm done. Let's stand to our feet and we'll close in prayer this morning. I just really want to pray that the Holy Spirit will help us see the way He sees things. That some of the opposition around us is spiritual in nature. Hey, we're going to close in prayer in just a second and kind of seal this message. And I think prayer is one of the most sacred things that we do. You know, in our services we have, we have, we have some fellowship. That's why we have donuts and coffee and all that stuff is we want you to connect with friends. That's a part of church life. We have worship. We have the Bible that's being opened, but we also have prayer where people can make a real connection with God. But the first opportunity for prayer I'd like to offer you is if you're here today and, and you need to get right with God. In your heart, you know you're not where you need to be, that something is missing in your life. I'm telling you this, friends, from experience. You're not going to find lasting happiness in life through relationships. I don't care how many people you go through, at some point you're going to realize that's not what's going to make me happy. 
You're not going to find happiness, lasting happiness, if you line your wall with diplomas. Education's good, I believe in it, but that's not what's going to make you happy. You're not going to find happiness by accumulating money, because the more you get, the more people that want a hunk of it. You're not going to find happiness, friend, in a bottle, in smoke, in powder. You're going to wake up the next morning, you're going to look in the mirror and say, what's happening to me? I'll tell you, friend, where happiness comes from in life, where peace comes from in life, in a relationship with God. When you surrender your life to Christ and simply say, Jesus, I want you to be first in my life. I ask you to forgive me. I acknowledge that my way has been wrong, and I want to commit my life to follow you and serve you. That, my friend, is what it means to be a Christian. And if you're here today and say, man, you're talking to me now, I want to give my life to Christ. I want Jesus to be first in my life. I need his forgiveness. I need his peace. And I want to follow him the rest of my days. Listen, if that's you, we'd be honored to pray for you. Would you just lift your hand real quickly and say, pray for me. I want to get my life right with God today. Anyone this morning, say, pray for me. God bless you, dear. Give her a hand here. God bless you. Somebody else this morning, say, pray for me. I want to get my life right with God. I want to put my trust in him. Not asking you to join the church, asking you to make a step to Christ. We'll just show you how to get there. Anyone this morning? Here's what kind of what I know. There's a pull and it's a tug of war because I've been there. One to one, something saying, go, go up and let him pray for you. Another saying, get out of here. Do it at home. Do it somewhere else. Here's what I know. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before the Father. But if you don't confess me before men, I'll deny you. There's something about a public confession. There's something about walking away from the old you and the old world and making a step to Christ. Anyone this morning, my last opportunity, pray for me. I want to get right with God. Praise the Lord. God bless you too, buddy. Give him a big hand. God bless you. God bless you. All right, listen. In just a second, our prayer team's going to come. We'll sing a song through one time and you'll be free to go. But I want to make this offer in prayer. I've been talking about spiritual opposition this morning. I've been talking about the enemy of your soul. And if you're here this morning and it's been resonating in your heart and you see in some way where Satan is after your life, it could be some overt opposition or you just may feel like you're under satanic attack. I mean, no, our families can be under attack. Our our finances can be under attack. Our health can be under attack. Our own mental sanity, our mind can be under attack with anxiety and worry. But if you're here and you want somebody to pray for you, that God would help you deal with all that stuff, we'd be honored to pray. Our prayer team is coming right now. They're going to come and just gather here. And if you want prayer for anything, you come up. We'd be honored to pray for you. You that lifted your hand too, dear, come on up. Let us pray for you too. God bless you. Come on up. Let us pray for you. One of our pastors right over here will meet you. Anyone else that needs prayer, you come and let us pray as Pastor Nick sings. God bless you. I love you. We'll see you uh, Wednesday night at a life group or here at the church and bring something up next Sunday. Uh-huh.